From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. We will not be taking your phone calls today, unless, of course, your name is Alice or Karen, and we will be taking those phone calls. But uh, we're recording a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Occasionally, Mr. Donovan is out gallivanting around the countryside, and we cannot do the live program. So we're, for such an occasion as that, we are recording this program today to take some of our email questions that have come in over the recent weeks. And uh, we've got a couple of young ladies who have hung on through the uh, transition from the last program, and they're going to ask their questions here in just a moment. So we won't be giving out those phone numbers, but we would like for you to send us emails at openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com and put something in the subject line like Theology or Friday or Collins, something like that, and it'll get to the appropriate folder. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And our host, as he is every single Friday, is our Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. Shall we dive right in? Let's dive right in. All right. First up uh, today is Karen in the great state of Pennsylvania, listening on the Amazon Echo. Karen, thanks so much for holding. You are on with Colin Donovan. Thank you very much. Um, My question is, how important is the homily at weekend masses? Our pastor promised us if enough parishioners filled out a parish survey, we wouldn't have to listen to him preach during the month of July. And there were enough responses for no homilies during July. We sat and examined the holy moments that we had during the past week. Well, um... I've I've been bopping around this uh, this world actually for sixty some years. Several years. Yeah. Several years now, and uh, I've been to a lot of crazy <laughs> liturgies. I've heard a lot of unusual things. I've never heard that one. Have you? I, I have not. Now I, I believe that there is a provision for a daily mass for there to be no homily. Yeah, and. Certainly, all priests are encouraged to have a daily homily on the, even if it's pro forma, brief, you know, it's a meditation out of the divine office or something, and sometimes even uh, the friars will do. They'll take uh, some of the beautiful readings in the divine office that are geared to the liturgy of the day and and say something on that or work it into a brief homily. Uh, That's fine. At the weekday mass, to skip it, working people got to get to work, all of that. Uh, no, on Sunday, there's supposed to be a homily. I'm sure Father's intention was good. He needed this information. He was trying to... I think I would have offered dinner with the pastor or something like that to get people to... Uh, uh, that's not really... Uh, I don't think that's the mind of the church. Um, there should be a homily at the Sunday Mass. It's more or less obligatory, um, you know, barring some very unusual circumstances... Uh, so I really can't. <laughs> I, I really can't approve of that. Not that my approvals are really needed, but 
God bless you, Karen. Thanks so much for holding on. That's a good question, and I'm sure a lot of people have run across things like that in their parishes out there, and that'll be helpful. You know, I well. sympathize with pastors who are trying to get stuff done in the parish, and you know, but a different route probably would have been yeah. better. Yeah. Thanks so much. Again, it's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, but we do have a couple callers that uh, hung around from the last hour. And Alice is one of those. She's in the great state of Connecticut, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Alice, you're on with Colin Donovan. Okay, thank you. Um, My question concerns the end times. I've uh, heard various uh, things are meant to happen around then um uh at the at jesus second coming he says do you think i will find faith upon earth um and there will be you know the earthquakes and and Mm -hmm. terrible floods and all that but then i also hear about a thousand years of peace and then the blessed mother said in the end my immaculate heart would triumph which would seem to mean that there would be holiness on earth and peace. So I'm Mm -hmm. confused about what happens when. Sure. Um, First of all, unlike our our, uh, non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters, um, we don't think the end times as only the period of time at the very end. That's the altissimi, that's the, the, the ultimate times, if you will. Really, since Christ's departure from the earth at the Ascension, we are already in those times because this is the last era of the earth's, of human history. Uh, and it'll have different phases. There's no doubt about that. The question is, you know, how, the, how does that relate to the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation certainly contains prophetic information. Uh, it's, it's an account of the contest between good and evil that takes place throughout all of history, going back to the to the fall of the angels in view of the incarnation. And so we have that beautiful chapter 12 uh, regarding uh, has uh, Our Lady. Historically, some have said, well, that's uh, Israel during the Old Covenant. That's Our, Our Lady, the incarnation. That's the church during the New Covenant. But the idea is that the devil is out pursuing the brothers and the the children of God, the brothers and sisters of our Lord throughout history. And so the kinds of things that happen in there, the, the warnings to the seven churches can be universalized to any period of time, but they may also then apply to discrete historical times as well. At least since the third century in St. Augustine and even in others before him, the symbolism of the thousand years, first of all, as a Jewish apocalyptic number, uh, found in uh, the idea of, of numbers in, in numerology, sacred numerology existed before Book of Revelation. Uh, there's a whole intertestamental literature that employs it uh, of Jewish origin. So that's already around. The thousand years is, is a long time. Is like the sacred number seven referring to a fullness of things. Uh, obviously, we associate three with the Trinity, 12 uh, with the apostles, 10 with, the, with the, the Decalogue, the laws of God. You know, so these numbers acquire significance based on that nine with the choir of angels and so on. Um, they obviously, in certain cases, they have a, a literal meaning like the 10 uh, commandments. Uh, the Twelve Apostles, but then they also have a figurative meaning. 
the thousand years since Augustine's time has been taken to be the time of the era of the church to the end of the world. Now, that doesn't mean there can't be other little hips and scops, uh, skips in history. So we can, first of all, for the general run of things, we can look to the Catechism of Catholic Church beginning at paragraph 668. So I, anybody listening, if you haven't looked at the Catechism in a while, uh, go get it, be, look at 668, and it tells us the things that will occur before the end, including a falling away, the rise of what has always been called the Antichrist, following the example of St. John in his letters, uh, and then the second coming after that. The mystics have elaborated on that. The, by that, legitimate mystics would be saints and blesseds and venerables, have elaborated on that to see another crisis before the end of the world, which is sort of a preview and, and anticipation of that. Um, and this is the one which most people who have thought thoughtfully about it have associated the, the, the Fatima with. Something along these lines that there will be this great trial of the church, and out of this will come a period of time in which the Blessed Mother is, is teaching humility. You should read the calls, the calls of Fatima by Sister Lucia de, uh, uh, of Fatima, where she talks about training, essentially training an army in, the hum, in humility. It is by humility that Our Lady will conquer, not by armies. Uh, she illustrated that in the fall of the Soviet Union. Now we are reaping the fruits of the spread of the ideologies, the materialism, the atheism, which at one point had conquered Russia. We are now experiencing it in the West. And so we will have to have our purification as as the Russian people did. And I think that's probably upon us right now. And after that, there will be some time. We don't know how long it will be. Uh, for us to complete the evangelization of the world, which has clearly not been completed when you look at the, the numbers of people around the world who, if they've heard the gospel, it's in a very perfunctory way. Very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you want to send us an email question, we can answer in a future program. That address is Line at EWTN.com. Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call one 205 271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com Pay no attention to those phone numbers. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. If you'd like your email to be part of a future broadcast, send us an email to openline at EWTN.com Put Colin or Friday or Theology in the subject line and it will make its way to us. We're talking to Alice in the great state of Connecticut about the end times. Yeah, and uh, that has a lot of people, you know, uh, activated, if you might say. I'm constantly reading, you know, the Antichrist is around the corner. 
Well, he, he might be. Jesus said we never know when he's going to return. But the Catholic mystics have given us uh, interpretive keys. I think uh, at Fatima, Our Lady did as well to understand that uh, there is a period of time to evangelize coming, the era of peace. It's not a thousand years. It might be one generation. Who knows what it will be? And it will come out of the trial of the church. Uh, and I think this is, uh, you might say, if we want to draw an analogy, our Lord had his passion, death, and resurrection, and then he stayed around for a while to teach the apostles, and then his ascension. I'm thinking we will have something similar to that in that there will be a, a time of great turmoil in the future, and that out of that will come a period of time by which we can bring the blessings of the gospel uh, to the world. Um, and we've been trying to do that for 2,000 years, but it will be a special time because of the purification that will, it will take to get us there. You know, there's one prophecy that is that there's no debate about the meaning of. What's that? And that's Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Uh, the sheep about, and the goats. About that day, no one knows the day or the no, hour. That, that no one knows the day or the hour. But then you have, in Matthew, you also have the, the whole kingdom parables, which teach us about uh, different aspects of the judgment. And so the judgment will come at the very end, and she was asking about that earlier in her question. Um, the judgment will come, uh, and that will be the end of human history. We will all be judged, not in our particular personal histories, but in some way, I think, related to, uh, to God's uh, wisdom in hu uh, working through all of us in human history uh, in a way that will be a fitting uh, account of mercy and justice, mercy for, the, for those who are in heaven and justice for those who aren't. Uh, and after that, a new heavens and a new earth, meaning just as the body of Christ was spiritualized, just as our bodies will be spiritualized and manifest the radiance of the divine glory in our souls, the universe will be glorified as well. Uh, so that we can speak of a new heavens and new earth and not living in the same way that we live today because there's no giving and taking in marriage. There will be no necessity of eating, though we can, as Jesus did. Uh, we, can't all, we can't imagine. I has, I has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for us. We have sort of little glimpses of it in the sacred scripture of what this new heaven and new earth will be like. But the greatest thing will be that vision of God which we have in our souls, in which we know him face-to-face, uh, -face, unlike knowing him through faith. And then one final point, she talked about the trial of faith. Right. Um, really, it's a trial of faith, hope, and love. These are the theological virtues. These are the greatest gifts, as St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. And the one that survives is love. But we're tried by faith, in other words, by the truth, we're tried by hope. Do we trust God's divine power or do we trust our own, our own ability? Uh, the gentleman, uh, uh, a gentleman in a recent call asked about, well, saving ourselves. Do Catholics believe that we're you know, saved by works? No. If we trusted ourselves, we'd be Pelagians. No, we trust God. And so there is a, going to be a, a test of our hope and certainly a test of our love, our love for God, our love for neighbor, our love for the church. Uh, all of those things will be purified uh, by the trials that come at the, at the end of the world. Um, in recent weeks, we've received some calls on our listener comment line. We're going to take a listen to one of those now. 
Hi, this is Grace from Los Angeles, California. And I'm just wondering about um, Mary, Mary and original sin. And since she was conceived and born without original sin, if she actually labored when she gave birth to Jesus, because I'm recalling from parochial school learning that women labor because of original sin that uh, from uh, Eve. So I'm wondering if Mary didn't actually have to labor when she gave birth to Jesus. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's not a question the church has, has looked at. The church affirms her virginity in giving birth, uh, just as in conceiving or is conceiving our Lord in her womb. But just exactly what that means, um, some mystics have compared it to light passing through a window that our Lord passed through uh, the wall of her uh, out of the womb into the into the world. Um, you could argue, I suppose, based on the example of Eve, that had she not sinned, it would have been a a painless uh, act of uh, giving birth. So that's a possible. Uh, that would be to sh- to demonstrate that. Uh, uh, her immaculate conception didn't deliver her from her uh, the what God intended for all women had Eve not sinned. Because uh, in Genesis we're told that, as, as you rightly uh, said, at Grace, that uh, the penalty for man is we have to work by the sweat of our brow. The penalty for woman is the pains of labor. Um, and so that is passed on to, to each man and woman. Uh, and so... There's no definitive answer for that. I'm inclined to the miraculous, but the uh, uh, the idea of a birth such as Eve would have experienced uh, is also, uh, I think, strongly arguable. A birth such as my wife experienced in giving birth to our two children, that I do not believe. That I don't believe. Got an email here from Frank, and he says, Mr. Donovan, while alive on this earth, we possess the ability to create and cooperate with God in creating. In paradise, would we retain some semblance of this capability? Has the church any statements or teachings on this? Well, that goes to what we were talking about earlier a little bit, and that is uh, the creative powers of, of man are, are aimed at his natural end. And man has to... Um, propagate himself, and there will be no, no such need because the number of persons in heaven is a fixed number. Some of the fathers speculated the number of the fallen angels. So if you were the devil, you might get an idea how close. He might have some inkling of how we are close to the end, and it might explain some of his fury to try to get people to do things such as take their life, commit abortions, and so on to forestall the number of people who can potentially die in the state of grace and be among the redeemed. Uh, But that is speculation. That's nothing that the church teaches positively. Uh, But in any case, the generative power will not be needed. Uh, I've heard, and I think it's a little bit far-fetched to say it might still be used, but that doesn't make sense either because the, the pleasure associated with that would be Far, far beneath the sheer overwhelming joy of the beatific vision. You know, I, I, I can't see that as even a choosable activity. 
Uh, however, in Islam, I believe that that is one of the the blessings that uh, alleged blessings. the alleged blessings of of, of heaven. <laughs> Again, we're not taking your phone calls today. A very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hello, this is Joe from uh, Northern Michigan. A question concerning the Mass. I always knew that the Mass is you know, one of the highest forms of prayer, and there's great graces and benefits for that. So what, what would be the difference if I would call the rectory and have a mass offered for a certain intention, and then, then they publish it in the bulletin, you know, this mass is for, by this person. Mm-hmm. Or if I didn't do that and it just showed up at mass and offered it for the same intention. Is one better than the other? Uh, I appreciate your answer. Thank sure. you. Bye. Yeah, the short answer is yes, because when you, when you um, have the priest celebrate a mass for an intention— uh, he brings to it his his priestly role, his official capacity as a as a priest, and he offers that. And so, the piety that should accompany that you would expect to be greater than the you know you yourself could bring to it. So, the the value of the mass is no different. Every mass is infinitely valuable, whether it's uh, Padre Pio celebrating it, or even a priest who is not in grace. The mass still is the mass. But what is added to that uh, inestimable value is the value of the celebrant in his devotion. Thus, uh, the mass of a Padre Pio has the potential of being more valuable in that respect. Um, but also the bringing our own prayers and accompanying in prayers, also that pious intention brought before God will be valuable. In truth, we can't make a calculation between the two, but to have the, the, the priest who is acting in persona Christi offer that prayer uh, is going to be of greater value than simply you in the pew uh, offering it up. We have to remember that he is accompanying Christ in a certain sense in Calvary. And priests should, I think, think of that when they offer the Mass, the tremendous role that they have and the tremendous right that they have to accompany Christ and offer him to the Father because that's what they're doing. They're offering them to the Eternal Father no differently than Christ himself on Calvary offering himself to the Father. It has all the merit and all the value of that because it is Christ himself and the priest acting in the person of Christ doing it and therefore has that infinite value. You know, some people have, especially people outside the church, have problems with honorariums and things being Mm -hmm. offered to priests who say masses for particular intentions. Speak to that tradition a little bit. Well, you know, the workman is worth his hire is what the Lord said, and that means that, you know, for the— Traditionally, priests, at least in the Catholic Church and and others as well, I'm assuming, uh, in the Eastern Church, they don't make a big salary. They live on, uh, they live on the income. And if they're in a poor parish, they may not uh, have anything much additional to that. So it it is that they they are worth their hire in that sense, and so it's an act of justice as well. Um, and we. There's sometimes in pious people the idea that, well, natural justice goes out the window. 
I don't have to do that. You know, I don't have to be grateful for the priest. It's his job. He's supposed to be there. No. We have an obligation of justice to give the priest a sign of our gratitude and the stipend that we would give for a mass to be offered. Is a, is a demonstration of that gratitude. Very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. But if you'd like your email answered on a future show, just send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We're not giving out those phone numbers today because it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. You can always send us an email anytime, openline at EWTN.com. Ed has sent an email here. He says, it sure makes sense that the angels fell because they could not serve a lesser creature, for instance, man, But another reason is for sheer desire for power, the will to power, which, of course, is also pride. Right. Pride is the root of all sins. Uh, We can go looking for this uh, specification in other capital sins. And the one that is often offered is not anger, obviously not lust, but envy. Um, If you're thinking it'd be more wise of God to unite himself to an angel and here instead he's uniting himself to this creature man and of course this is all out in the future Uh, as much behind that could be envy as anything else and I think that's why the scripture suggests that by envy the devil uh, fell and so uh, pride but pride is at the root because if we put ourselves at the center of everything then whether it's in relationship with money or sex or uh, anything else, vanity, it's because of ultimately because of our pride. And it's, it's just simply a variation on that egotism. We've got another call that has come in on our listener comment line. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name is Joseph. I'm calling from Bismarck, North Dakota. And my question is, what should be done, if anything, if the pastor at my church frequently refuses him to distribute Holy Communion himself. Oftentimes he has extraordinary ministers of communion uh, distribute Holy Communion, and he refrains staying behind the altar or making himself otherwise absent. Mm -hmm. I would appreciate your addressing the question at your convenience. Thank you. And, And I assume that that's not a case of him being sick and you know, maybe having back problems or not able to walk out and stand for a period of time. All of those would certainly justify having somebody else do it. But the priest, especially if the only one present is the priest, uh, is the ordinary minister of the sacrament, and therefore he has an obligation to do it, barring some uh, something obstructing him the f- fulfilling of that, such as sickness or inability to stand for long periods and so on. Uh, so that's simply that's simply his obligation. Um, you could certainly point it out to him, as I would say gently, uh, and I don't know. This that would be one where 
I think twice about going to the bishop, but ultimately you could go to you could go to the bishop. That's not the most definitive answer you've ever given. No. <laughs> well, you know, you don't want to you don't want to be sort of uh, you know chasing the gnat <coughs> around the room and uh, making mountains out of molehills. It's not the greatest liturgical abuse that there is. So you have to pick your fights, too. Yeah, exactly. Stephen writes in, I hope, here you go, Colin, I hope you can settle an argument between two priests. Do you have your referee's jersey on here? A, uh, a penitent presents for confession. He is a baptized Catholic, but has never been catechized. For instance, never made a first confession, first communion, or confirmation. The confession was otherwise valid in all required elements. One priest granted absolution to the penitent. Another priest said that it should not be done because the penitent did not receive catechetical instruction. I've reviewed the catechism and find no such requirement on instructions, etc., before receiving absolution, assuming all elements of a valid confession. Did giving absolution in this circumstance convey the sacrament of reconciliation? Ab- absolutely, and there is no nothing in the catechism because there is no such rule. Uh, in fact, uh, unless there is some point of inconvenience, uh, that you wake the priest up at two a.m. in the morning or something, you know, and he shows up in his nightcap, well, that that's maybe a little bit asking a lot of him to come down and hear your confession. But barring that kind of thing, or he's running out to a sick call or something like that, the priest should be available even extraordinarily to hear a confession. Um, conf- the, the desire to, hear, to have your confession heard means that one has a burden on one's conscience that one wants authoritatively relieved by the minister of Christ. It's his duty to relieve that. You can catechize him after the fact, but you have to take that cross off the shoulder of the person. Uh, that's what Christ is asking in that situation. That's what the church is asking. It makes no such condition. Now, as children grow up and they reach the age of reason, yes, there's catechesis, and then there's first confession, and then there's first communion. But that's sort of a natural progression in that circumstance. This is somebody who is coming with a burden as an adult. If they went out and if they went out and got killed by a car, I would hope that perhaps the priest would spend, even if they were uh, the Lord receives them, that he would spend their time in purgatory uh, because he should have absolved them. <laughs> Let's have a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Well, this is Mike, Centennial, Colorado. My question is, what is Molinism? Is that a heresy promoted in the 16th century by the Jesuits? Thank you. Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I say that as an adherent of the Dominican school of thinking on these matters. Is the battle between grace and uh, freedom, you know, and the emphasis that each would put on that. And the the basic is that the Pope said pace. That's Italian. He might have said it in Latin, pax. Uh, In other words, this we can't know the exact mix of grace and freedom that goes into human acts. So um, heresy might be a little bit strong, (laughs) 
Um, unless you're a Dominican, uh, you, you'd have to you'd have to reform if you were to join the Dominicans. I think uh, you'd look good in a white hat. Yes, well, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> I don't think Andrea would like it, but <laughs> no, I don't think so. Well, third order, third order. <laughs> well, there you go. Okay, very good, very good. Uh, John writes in. I often read and hear Revelation eight, verse four being used to substantiate the Catholic doctrine of the communion of saints. How can this be true when chapter 8 depicts a time during the Great Tribulation just before the seven trumpet judgments? That certainly doesn't mean the activity is happening now. That's from John. Yeah, and of course that takes the position that this is a blow-by-blow account of the end and doesn't have any language that would be sort of symbolic of all of the battles that the Church would face uh, before the end of the world, which I believe it does. Uh, In any case, if you want to play the literalist game, uh, this vision was had on the island of Patmos in the first century. So if there wasn't a communion of saints before John had the vision, there obviously is one after he had the vision. So the question is answered in either case. Uh, No, John saw what was happening in heaven. It's what was happening then. It's what is happening now. And that is those who have gone before us can represent us before God by their prayers, by their pleadings. uh, And so uh, we are in communion with them. Here's a good uh, email from Adam. Uh, who says is a daily listener to EWTN. We appreciate that in St. Charles, Illinois. He says, Hi, my new neighbor just moved in with two children. She was Catholic raised, but married to a Lutheran man whom she divorced. In the marriage, both kids were raised Lutheran. Now, since being divorced, she's confused about how she should, how her children should be raised as Catholics like herself or continue as Lutherans. And if Catholic, can she do that... Um, having full custody of the children? Well, the last is a legal question. I can't tell you that, but the moral question is is yes. Uh, they should be raised as Catholics. Uh, granted, that can have, you may have a difference of opinion with your, with your husband, um, even though by the law he is, you're separated from him, divorced from him. Uh, he's still your husband. Um, so I think you know, morally, obviously, yes, you should desire to raise. You have custody. You have the primary responsibility to raise them. You want a consistent raising. So even logically, you would say it makes sense that you raise them uh, according to your faith, and that's what you should do. We've got another listener comment line call for you, Colin. Let's take a listen. Michigan. Hi, this is Ken from Macomb, Michigan, enjoying your program very much, driving to Tennessee tonight. Uh, question about Mary in Luke, calling Jesus her Savior. And also, she says, I am a servant of the Lord. <clears throat> if Mary was sinless, why did she call Jesus her Savior? And also, around somewhere in the, in the mid 1850s, Pope Pius VI proclaimed Jesus, or proclaimed Mary to be sinless. Um, Mary should be revered and honored. She's an important person. But again, Mary is recorded saying Jesus is her Savior. Why would Mary need a Savior if she was born sinless? That's my question. 
Okay. You know, a lot of things, especially in our modern society, are said about our Blessed Mother. One thing that you don't often hear about our Blessed Mother that I think is abundantly true, she was one heck of a theologian. Well, she was, you know. Uh, we we know that many of the things which we, we univocally uh, attribute to Christ uh, actually can be attributed first to Our Lady. So, for, for instance, um, the angel calls her blessed among women, a Hebraicism which means over all women who have ever lived. Eve was a woman created in perfect justice. Our Lady is more blessed even than Eve. How can that be? That's a question to hang out there for the moment. Then she visits her cousin Elizabeth. And the minute John hears Mary's voice, he leaps for joy. Mary is the instrument, very first instrument of sanctification. And the fathers in the church have held that John was sanctified in the womb, delivered from original sin in the womb by the instrumentality of Christ's presence, yes, but a presence that was brought about by Mary's voice and the recognition of it. You might say a sacramental sign in the way that we would say the priest is a minister of the gospel. He is a sign of the, of, of the word of God. He isn't the word of God, but he brings it to others. So Mary does all of those things. With regard to her immaculate conception, what does that say? It says that in the normal course of her conception, Joachim and Anna would have given birth or conceived a child born in original sin as we all are. Meaning that we are born, we are conceived rather, without the grace of God in our souls. So we have to understand what the church is saying by original sin. That man was created in a tripart unit, integrity, body, blood, and or body, soul, and spirit. Spirit there referring to the spirit of God, the divine life within. By sin, God's presence left them. And it is that disintegration which is communicated through generation from one parent to another or from parents to their children, and we call that original sin. And that is that the person is no longer has that peace and that integrity of their humanity because of the presence of God that Adam and Eve would have had. And yet they sinned. Can you? I mean, it's mind-boggling. They sinned with all of those gifts. And Thomas goes on and talks about their preternatural gifts of insight and and even into nature and naming the animals is sort of the sign of that in Scripture. He was able to see, the, in a sense, to understand the nature of animals and give them names. All these graces, and pfft, he throws them away. So that's a tremendous thing. Mary is more blessed than Eve. That's all you really have to know out of that passage. So when she was conceived without original sin, what does that mean? God was present from the beginning. Why? Because as the fathers say, he wanted a new Eve for his new Adam so that the human race could be refounded in the order of grace. We're still born without original sin, but we became brothers and sisters of Christ through baptism. And we that's still born with original sin. We're, right. We're still born with original sin. 
So how does Pope Pius, he mentioned a, a pope, I think he got the pope wrong, Pius IX said, by virtue of the passion and uh, death of our Christ, I don't have the exact words there, maybe you, you can get them, but essentially, by foreknowledge of the merits of the passion, she was conceived without original sin. Thus she is a savior. I like what Scott Hahn has to say about this. You know, some people are saved after they sin. Some people are saved before they sin. She was saved before she sinned and, and cooperated with grace throughout her life so that she was sinless to the end, that she could fittingly both be the mother of, of, this, of God, the mother of the Kyrios of the Lord, as Elizabeth calls her. And a Jew would never say Kyrios if they didn't mean God. And she's the mother of the curious of the of of the Lord. Why is it the mother of the my Lord came to visit me? So there's that tremendous graces that was given to Our Lady, and which she lived in to the end of her life. Not, you know, doesn't mean she knew everything that was going to happen. She obviously didn't, because at Cana she asks her son, or tells her son, they have no wine. <laughs> And he gives the symbolic woman, the same one he gives on the cross, the same one God used of, At of Eve. Woman, it's not yet my time. And yet he did it. He let his mother begin his active ministry at Cana. That's how close she was to the mission of Christ. Because at that moment, they both knew that it was a march straight to the cross at that point. Right, uh, and she would have known that even though she wanted to facilitate this couple, uh, this couple's wedding. Uh, Jennifer writes in, Hi, my question is regarding pregnancy, child care, and church. Ever since I've gotten pregnant, getting to Mass has been difficult due to morning sickness and other pregnancy ailments. In addition, my doctor advised me not to worry about going because I should avoid the crowds. The more the pregnancy has progressed, the harder things have become, so much so that my husband has had to stay home to take care of me. Do I have to go to confession for missing these masses? What about when my daughter is born and I'm taking care of her and cannot get to church? Parenthetically, I believe I know the answer to the last question, but would like confirmation. Thank you so much. She loves the show and listens almost every day. Yeah. Um, the law regarding going to Mass is an ecclesiastical law. It's called positive law. And although the divine negative prohibitions like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc., never lapse, despite what is said it's in some quarters today, uh, the positive prohibitions sometimes do lapse because it's impossible to fulfill them. You have a condition of impossibility, and so you, on your judgment, decide that on a particular occasion you can't go to Mass, you're excused from the Mass. So there's no sin involved in that. Uh, if your children were sick, you'd probably stay home for them after they're born. Uh, now it's you that are having this difficult pregnancy. Uh, your husband has to stay home to look after you. And I sure hope he gets to Mass at another time, though, uh, unless it's necessary to give more full-time care. And I think we have one more listener comment line call that we're going to take a listen to now. Uh, my name is Leo. 
Christ died for our sins, and he forgave all sins by his death on the cross. Protestant theology, at least some of the denominations, think that um, that satisfied redemption for all of our sins, no matter when we commit them. Whereas in the Catholic Church, you need to go to confession each time you commit a mortal sin uh, in order to get back into the state of grace. Could you explain the difference between Christ having died for all of our sins on the cross uh, versus having to continue to confess your sins and seek forgiveness? Thank you. Bye. Well, Christ dying for all our sins is like saying that uh, Paul did not die. Peter did not die. In fact, doesn't Paul say that? It wasn't me you cru- was crucified. So there's no one else. When, when you're forgiven your sins, there's no one else on the basis of which you're forgiven than Christ and his death on the cross. And even when it's ministered to by the church, that beautiful formula I love hearing in its entirety, and not every circumstance permits it, but, you know, by the ministry of the church, I absolve you from your sins. Um those beautiful words, hearing those. So what the church is really saying is that Christ died for all, but not all would accept it. That's clearly obvious from the fact that uh, Jesus talked about the narrow way. Uh, if, If there's a narrow way, it's not just about him dying for us and getting into heaven gratis. It's about him dying for us and us persevering in that to the end of our life by following a narrow way not the wild gate that leads to damnation. Uh, So there's clearly uh, a distinction to be made between our Lord's death for all and the words which are now been restored in the formula of consecration, and that is for the many, and that always referred to those who would accept the salvation, recognizing that Christ died for the salvation of all, but only the many, some number of them will um, uh, and the Greek, I think, is more expressive of that than the English translation. Uh, but only certain individuals will accept it. Then the role of the the role of the priest is to minister the salvation, and that has the scriptural warrant of Easter night. Uh, the very first thing our Lord did after being raised is to say to the apostles, "Peace be with you. My peace I give you, whose sins you are forgiven." So the very first things he does is to give the church the the means of giving peace, to give them to give the graces that he has just won by his passion, death, and resurrection. Peace with the Father he gives to the apostles to give to us. And how do we get it? Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Now, does that mean the apostles go around and say, Okay, Jack, you're saved. Oh, Tough luck, Mike, over here in the booth. You're, you're, you're forgotten about. doesn't matter. No, there has to be a criteria. And the criteria is when we come to the priest and we say, I've done X, Y, and Z, and these are these mortal sins, and he says, I absolve you from your sins. In other words, I minister to you the redemption that Christ won. I give to you the peace he gave, he won, the peace he gave to the apostles to distribute under these criteria, confession and, dis- and judgment, confessing the sins and deciding, not arbitrarily, but in accordance with the sorrow of the, of the penitent, yes, in the name of Christ and the church, I absolve you from your sins. 
So I would say that the Protestant idea of forgiveness is totally unscriptural and that only the church has didn't sit down and think this out. Well, let's how can we draw some dots between these scriptural verses and make it fit our theology? It just did from the very beginning. It just did what the Lord gave it to do. And later on said, well, let's come up with the theology of this. Let's explain it. Let's understand it. No, is the faith that was communicated that the church is living. The theology only came later. You know, it's interesting because in my own journey into the Catholic Church, you know, I, I, I approach things initially from a viewpoint of uh, looking at, at Catholic doctrine X and saying, where is that in the Bible? Now, as I cooperated with grace during the process, I reached a turning point where I started approaching it from the aspect of, does Catholic doctrine X fly in the face of what's stated in the Bible? Made a whole lot of difference for me, for right. sure. And what I didn't know is I had changed from a non-Catholic approach to a Catholic approach. Yeah, this, the, the scripture used by the fathers and by the church down the centuries is that it witnesses to the faith the church already possesses. The church preceded the scripture. We're told as much. The church is the pillar of oh, it's truth. Ju- it's just a historical fact. It's, it, it's, <laughs> right. It's a chronological fact, a historical fact. And we're told it in sacred scripture. We're told it by the very founding of a church, the appointment of apostles, the appointment of their successors, the bishops. The whole thing is laid out there, and the church just lived that and then, you know, came up for explanations. Generally, when somebody said nay, the church would say, well, let me explain my yay. And it did. Well, there you have it. Colin, thanks so much for being so gracious with your time. Uh, it flew by, and uh, we, we have no idea as we sit here when this may air, but... Uh, I think it will air at the precise moment that our good Lord thinks it needs to air. It will indeed. Awesome. On behalf of our host, our Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, and our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for taking a little time out of your day to join us here on EWTN's Open Line Friday. We're here every day of the week, Monday through Friday, 3 o'clock Eastern Time. On Mondays, we talk scriptural apologetics with John Martinoni. On Tuesdays, Father Wade Menezes, Father Mitch Pack was in the house on Wednesdays, Father Larry Richards on Thursday. Until we get together next time, God bless. <laughs>